Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks for joining me. As always, appreciate it. This week, I am interviewing Ron Barker. Now, he's got an experience very different than anyone else, I think, really kind of in the world. Certainly, if you're a, a college athletics fan, you're going to really enjoy this one just to see how uh, you know, the world of uh, infraction investigations happen. But even if you're not a, a fan of, of sports at all, I think you'll enjoy kind of the behind-the-scenes of of uh, investigating something that uh, we all, I'm sure, know just a, a teeny bit about. We've seen some of those scandals, and and uh, and it's it's really kind of a, a true crime conversation, if you will. It's uh, it's kind of a, a mystery conversation. But we're going to talk about his books that he's putting out now. Uh, we're going to talk about his work, which. You know, he worked for the NCAA, and then he worked for the Pac-10, which turned into the Pac-12 uh, as an investigator. And these are, are conversations that up until about a year ago that he was not able to have. He didn't tell anyone what he did. He even told, you know, his his daughter's uh, friends that he was a, a high school janitor. So it's a very, uh, uh, I guess, a very confidential world and something that very few people know very much about Uh when he when he was the investigator for the Pac-10, he was actually the only investigator. And then there's a a handful of investigators at the NCAA. So just an interesting conversation that uh, I don't think uh, we're going to have uh, with very many people. So I mentioned it to him. College athletics are are very different in the United States than than most places. There's the way that we have monetized it there's literally millions hundreds of millions of dollars uh, within college athletics and uh, you know with with money comes issues definitely with the NCAA and the you know the infractions that it that uh, it's created you know the NCAA it's changing it's very much changing but they've they've spent so long trying to keep the amateur nature of it for the athletes that uh, they, they've created a lot of rules to try to make sure that uh, that amateurism stays. Now, there's there's uh, you, there's new new I guess changes that are letting the athletes get a lot uh, I guess more chunk of the change if you will. Uh, but for so long they've they've worked to make sure that uh, I guess the money stayed out of their hands, and you can decide if that was correct or not we'll talk a little bit about that and, and what he thinks and i mentioned what i think too but uh you know the, these minute rules of when you can talk to an athlete and when you can talk to a recruit and when you can do this and when you can do that is just very very intense and that's the reason that you know he he spent uh, his career going around the country trying to see when infractions were happening and and all that kind of stuff so i think you're going to enjoy this whether you are a huge college sports fan and have your your favorite team that you're you're diehard over, or whether you just like a good uh, conversation on uh, on true crime. Really, you know, he he mentions that he was looking at a, a Law and Order, you know, athletics show at one point. So it really is a, a cool conversation. I think everyone will enjoy this one. Without uh, saying much more, here is my interview with Ron Barker. I'm here today with Ron Barker. Ron, how are you? 
I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. Well, I always like to kind of just start before I, I kind of ask the the questions that I've uh, I've prepared, just to have you tell us just a little bit about yourself, kind of in your own words, and then maybe we'll go into a little bit more depth. Yeah, sure. So uh, my background is I, I started off, I got a master's degree in sports administration and coach basketball at Brigham Young University. I played professionally in South America. And when I came back, I uh, just kind of chanced into a job doing investigations for a large computer networking company and did that for seven years all over the United States and Asia, South America and Europe. And um, one day I was at a computer trade show seven years into it going, what am I doing? How did I get this job? I, I'm, not, I'm not working in sports. That's what I wanted to do. So on a whim, I sent a, uh, a application into the NCAA because they had an opening in enforcement doing investigations. And they called me and brought me out for an interview and said, we've never had someone with playing and coaching experience who has a degree in sports administration who's also actually done investigations because their model was to hire attorneys law school graduates who hadn't done investigations yet so it was a they thought I was an interesting candidate and I thought it was a chance to get back into a chosen field so I got hired and worked at the NCA for about three years doing investigations and an opportunity came open at the Pac-12 I'm originally from the west coast so it was a Pac-10 at the time, and they brought me out, and I interviewed on 9-11 and mm -hmm. ended up getting stuck in California for three days and ended up getting hired and moved out. And I was at the Pac-12 for 19 years as the uh, Associate Commissioner for Governance and Enforcement, and I did all of the investigations, the Reggie Bush type of things. Those are the things I worked on and didn't have a staff. It was just me. So anything bad that happened at the Pac-10, Pac-12 came to my, my desk, and I ended up handling it. Yeah, well, there's a lot to unpack there. But before we, we get to those, I just want to talk a little bit about you said that you went to, to, to BYU. Yeah, and I think, you know, we're going to talk a little bit more about kind of the, the rules of, of college sports here in, in a bit. But I'm sure coaching at BYU extra prepared you because not only do you have to follow the rules of the NCAA, now I know BYU kind of has their own set of rules to kind of govern the, the students even stricter than than the NCAA does, if that's right. Yeah, that is true. They have uh, an honor code that, you know, if you violate the honor code, that they're, they're getting to where they're starting to try to work more closely with student athletes. They had a group of student uh, football players that came in and said, you know, for us that grew up in this culture, it's fine. You know, this is how we grew up. But if you're recruiting kids from other areas who didn't grow up in this, to ask them to live by this culture you better really make sure they understand it before they sign on because they sign on because they want to play. And so I think BYU's gotten better with that. They're, they're now taking more time, being more understanding. Um, one of the toughest things coaching there is, you know, in football, they used to always say, oh, well, you have these grown men because they've gone for, away for two years and they come back, but they're not playing sports those two years. They're out. So I, as someone who did it myself, you're not getting in better shape. You're getting in worse shape. And then they come home and have to try to get back into sports shape. It's a tough thing to do. And you don't know for sure who's going to go because it's not mandatory. So trying to set up recruiting and know who's going to be coming back the next year, it's a difficult, difficult thing to do. And basketball even more so because you have much smaller numbers. So if all of a sudden you have two kids that you're planning on being there next year and they say, you know what, we're going to leave and go on a mission. All of a sudden you're down to. So it, it's a tough, tough thing. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't even imagine that. That's just extra 
extra kind of cogs in, in trying to figure out everything. But yeah. So, so the other question would be, cause I live in Indianapolis. Was the NCAA in Indianapolis when you were there or was it, was it still, I don't remember where it was before it came. Yeah, It was in Overland park, Kansas. I started there knowing they had moved, they were moving to Indianapolis. So I started the first three months in Kansas knowing that it was going to Indianapolis and I moved and I lived in Carmel and I lived there for three years with my family and worked in downtown Indianapolis at the NCAA there. Yeah, very good. Well, yeah, I went to IEPUI, so just connected to, to the NCAA, really. So, yeah. so very cool. So I, I guess the next thing I want to ask you, you've kind of already mentioned how you got into you know, investigative work, but what, I guess what, what started that passion for it? Was there really a passion to, to do that, or is that just kind of you know, what you, you lucked into? Because uh, I didn't really hear that, hey, I've, I, al- I grew up wanting to you know, be a cop or in the FBI, and then I, I did this. I think it was something different, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, you're right. I had no desire to do investigative work. I wanted to be a coach. And I finished my master's, and I was actually helping a friend who was coaching a high school team. And after one of the games, we, we had only had six guys on our varsity, but somehow we upset the number one and number two teams in the state to open the season. So we were ranked number one the whole season. We were playing one of our rivals, their very number one rival. And after the game, our kids were in showering and changing. And I was standing around waiting for them to finish. And this big, huge man, 6'5", 300-something pounds, came walking over to me and didn't know him. We started talking, and he told me his son was on the opposing team. And he asked me about myself and what I was doing. And I told him I was, I was finishing up my master's and he asked if I had a job and I said, no. And he handed me a business card and said, come see me if, you, if you're interested. I think I might have an opportunity for you. So it really was that. And I went in the next day and he worked for a company named Novell, which was a computer software networking company. They, they're the ones that invented things that hook computers together. So you could sit at your computer and talk to somebody on, on their computer in another business. So he it was hired to, to run their security. And one of the biggest things they said, our software is being pirated worldwide. We're losing tons of money, figure it out. So he hired a whole bunch of FBI agents to come in and work for them. And it was a disaster. If you can imagine FBI guys in their suits and ties walking into a computer culture where people are wearing shorts and it just didn't fly. And so immediately they saw that it wasn't going to work. And he decided, because he was an athlete in this day, he said, I'm just going to go find young athlete guys who I, we can teach this and see they'll, they'll know how to work as a team. So they hired three of us and, you know, we didn't, none of us had computer backgrounds. I didn't even take a computer class in school. I had no interest in it, but they had a really easy formula because they had embedded in each program, a serial number. So we would get it. We had a 1-800 pirates was our line. People would call in and give us tips. And so we'd sit and answer the phone. And, and for example, one of the cases I worked, someone called up and said, I run a movie theater in Indianapolis. I, I don't remember where it was, but, and we bought software to track who's buying tickets for the movie theater and how many tickets we're selling and how many we have left to sell. And we have multiple windows. So we needed a networking software. So they sold us a Novell network with our system, the guy who invented this computer system, the, the movie ticketing system. So we said, okay, because I don't think I, my Novell is an original copy. Because I don't have disk, I don't have any software for it. And we said, okay, there's an easy thing. We're going to lead you through it on the phone. We'd give them a few commands that they did themselves over the phone. And we'd say, do you see your serial number? And they'd say, yes. And we'd say, print that screen, write your, your name and initial it and the date, and send that, so that along with your invoice to us by mail. Because back then, still early days, so that he, they would mail it to us. And we'd say, 
And how did you learn about this company that you bought this from? And they'd give us other customers that were references. And we'd call those guys up and say, hey, do you have any Novell software with? Do you have any, any discs with you at the time, CDs? And they'd go, no, I don't. We'd, so we'd lead them through and they all had the same serial number. So in that particular case, there are over 1,500 movie theaters across the United States running the same five-user copy of Novell software. Oh my so, yeah, so it was really easy to do. We, were help, we would help the customers. We'd call up the person who had done it. We'd say, look, we can either get the FBI involved because we had ties to the FBI because our guy was an FBI guy who, who they did had no interest in doing this. So we would have to have one of our, we had one of the premier hackers work for us and he would go find those people and find credit card violations or child pornography stuff. And he would get enough information that we'd say, so if it was child pornography credit card, the FBI would do a raid on them. If it was just us trying to do software, we'd say, you know, we can either try to negotiate with you or we can just turn you over to law enforcement. And that would terrify them. And they would say, okay, what do we need to do? And we'd negotiate. A, we'd go and say, we're going to come out and audit your books, see your customers, see how many you've sold. And then we'd come up with a number. And I remember thinking that at the time, this is crazy. I'm, I'm on a plane wearing shorts. I was in my 20s. We'd come back on, in our shorts, me and another guy. We'd have a check in our backpack for $950,000 oh that we negotiated. And they made, we made them buy the original software for all the customers. Uh. So in the first year, we did over $11 million, the three of us. And so it was hugely successful with the three knuckleheads like us doing it. And so we saw the model work. So then it started, we started growing and I hired people in Singapore, Brazil and Argentina and supervised that staff. Another guy hired people in England and did Europe and we were just making money. And we also were working with governments to explain this is how you can recoup more, more of your taxes. I went to China in the early nineties to do a meet with their government and the government at the time was the one who was pirating all the software. But we said to them, if you do this legally, we can help you get taxes on it and track everything that's happening. So, you know, we were very successful without much knowledge. And, and I did it for seven years. And that was kind of how I got the investigative background. And then again, like I said, I was at a trade show in Las Vegas for computers going, well, what am I doing? <laughs> like, that wasn't what I wanted to do with my life. And, and so I saw, and I still was keeping up on what was going on in college sports. And I was taking a tra uh, paper that came in from the NCAA weekly paper and on it, they had jobs. And I saw a job for enforcement. I thought, you know, maybe my background will fit. So I sent it in and got hired from there. That's how I kind of got in back into sports. Yeah. And you said that you, when you were with the, the Pac-10, Pac-12 now, there was just you. There was three people doing it at, uh, at the software company. How many people were in enforcement with the NCAA? When I started, there was 14 investigators and uh, support staff, secretaries, and then uh, um, I think there are four directors. So each director would have a team of three or four investigators. Now there's probably 70, 80, 90 people. But at the time, there were 14 of us. And... We were moving from Kansas to Indianapolis. So I got in there and like first week they said, are you comfortable going on the road and doing that? But because I had done investigations, I was like, sure, but I don't know all the rules. And they said, just gather the information when something strikes you. Hey, is this right? Get more information. So I went on the road my, my second week. I think I'd been there a week training and people were leaving because people that long time people in Kansas didn't want to move. And so I went from being number 14 to number four or five, I can't remember, and seniority in three months. Mm. And this was from a staff who didn't have turnover. So all of a sudden it was major turnover. And I became one of the people that took everyone on their training trips. And, and 
you know, at the NSA, you would do three or four major cases a year, maybe if you're lucky that you'd go in front of the committee on infractions and present my one of my years because people were leaving. I'd take their cases on that were halfway done. I did like, I think it was 14 cases. So I appeared in front of the committee on infractions a lot and in a very short time. So I got to know them. I got to know what was going on. And, and one of the things at the NCA that drove me crazy was you know, they, they, they're very detailed and they're very meticulous. So I would catch something very serious, big thing and have it proved. And I'd have to go back and catch the little stuff. And I'd say, look, it's kind of like you've caught the murderer. Now you want me to see if they J-Rock walk committing the murder. Mm -hmm. So I would just fly through stuff. And sometimes my, my director would say, hey, uh, you know, I, but then they didn't argue with the results. I got ranked number one every year and I did a ton of cases. And so one one of the other things is that the NSA has an image, so they had us wear suits and ties and coats to go out on the road. Well, when you walk into a football coaching staff, they look at you and they're like, "Uh oh, attorney," and they wouldn't talk to you. Well, I'd come in and just dress in a polo shirt, and I'd say, "Yeah, I used to coach," and I'd sit and talk, with, and they would tell me everything. Mm -hmm. So the NSA people would say, "How do you get them to talk to you?" And I never said because I don't dress like you tell me to dress. And, but yeah, it was because I had coached. A lot of people would open up to me. Yeah. Yeah. So how does you said they sent you out on the road? I want to talk a little bit about, you know, the, the rules here in a moment, but how, how does that happen? So does, does someone, you know, reach out that, Hey, I think something shady is going on or how do they know exactly where to go? Or is there just routine audits of different athletic programs or what happens? No, back. And again, you know, I was at the NCAA in 99, I think 99 is when I start. So it's a while ago and it may be different, but um, you would get a tip, you'd get someone complaining about something, you'd get a student athlete that thought they had been wronged, you'd get an assistant coach who got fired and they'd want to blow the whistle on what was going on. You know, just it came from all different places. They never did routine audits, they never just picked schools and said, Hey, we're gonna, because you know, I, there's a lot of things that I didn't like how they did business. Um, it, it was easy to catch the small schools who didn't have a big staff to defend themselves and hard to catch the big schools. And I mostly did a lot of SEC football when I was there and that's the biggest of the big. And mm. you'd go in there and they'd have, you know, attorneys and people sitting around and against me, you know, but it, it was interesting, but I used to say to the insane people, you know, how come I'm only doing SEC football? And they'd say, it's just random. And I say, well, then if it's random, I should get a division three women's tennis case one time but I never did. I only got football and basketball and, you know, it, it just worked out that way, but they, it was mostly just people that were disgruntled or unhappy, or sometimes media reports would come out saying, Hey, we think, you know, this is, this is something we uncovered, but they never really had fully uncovered it. And then you'd go out and the NCAA has no subpoena powers. You know, they, they have to just start talking to people and see who will open up. And so it was a lot of just interviewing. If you're, if you think there's something going on in a football program and you interview 50 student football players on the team, you're going to, after 50, be able to tell what actually happened, even though you're going to get 30 different stories, but there's going to be enough similarities that you're going to be able to say, oh, here's what's going on. And then you can narrow in and, and on what's happening and get people to start talking to you. Yeah. And, and that's something I think important to, to point out, unlike, you know, the NFL or something that, that kind of is the, you know, the, the ruler of, of everything. NCAA is kind of a very loose body. They don't necessarily have a ton of control when it comes to, to definitely some of those huge programs that kind of want to, you know, I guess kind of run a little bit rampant. Obviously they can do some things when it comes to tournaments and not allowing that, but they don't really have the a complete control. Like I think a lot of people think they do. 
No, and the, and the biggest misconception that, you know, you hear coaches complain about the NCAA and, and you would say this and they'd get tired of it. And I'd get tired of saying it, but I'd say, when you complain about the NCAA, who are you talking about? Because there's no one in Indianapolis that's making the rules. Now there is a few, but at, in the time, it's the schools who are voting on the rules. And hey, we're proposing this, all the schools vote. The NCAA staff isn't doing this. So they complain about the stuff that's going on, but it was the schools that were voting to have it happen. And, you know, it's one of the things that about college sports that I don't think works very well is you have academic people, presidents of universities running the universities who hire an athletic director, but they don't know what's going on in the athletic department. And then you have the athletic director hire a coach and in big programs, that coach is the most powerful person and high paid person at the school, more than the president, more than the athletic director. So you have an employee who's making way more than their boss who has all the boosters support or hate and you know it's it, it doesn't work very well and so it's it's amazing that's ran as long as it has but now we're seeing huge changes and so when, when you get a group of presidents hire a commissioner at a conference they don't know what who they're hiring they don't and so what do what do they use to pick the person and so that time a lot of times falls apart and they hire someone who has no experience in college athletics because they want to make more money and it doesn't work well yeah and and so tell us a little about the I guess the rules we've, we've, we talked about it a lot here. The, the thing I guess I want to kind of point out is I'm sure a lot of things that you were investigating weren't, you know, actually a, a criminal issue it was just breaking some strange NCAA rules that really a lot of people, cause like when I've seen, you know, big scandals in college sports, sometimes you look at it and like, I don't feel like I would even have known that was against the rules, but this is like life ending. So talk a little bit about kind of the, I guess, the complexities of, of the rules. Yeah. So you're right that they're not, it's not the law. It's the NCAA law. So if it ever broke the law, then law enforcement would come in, take over and we'd take a back seat. And, and that's just how it worked. But um you know, there are rules that the enforcement staff people don't support and don't like, but they're the rules and you have to, you have to go forward with it. There's some rules that people were much, much, much more serious about than others. When I got there, um, you know, there, there's the amateurism rule that now is falling by the wayside quickly. But when I was there, I said, well, everybody who plays college basketball at, at, at an elite level is ineligible under the rules because they've all taken shoes and, and clothing from the shoe companies for their AAU teams. They're flying them all over the place. That's against the very nature of the NCAA rules. And I was told, well, yeah, we don't worry about that kind of stuff. And so, you know, it's very arbitrary and I didn't like that. I also didn't like that there are certain programs that people just had had something out for. So they wanted to go after them. And then there are other programs that, you know, are the squeaky clean, but you talk to people in that program, they tell you it's not squeaky clean here. And so, you know, it's kind of interesting that people have reputations built over lots of years. And when you're one of the things my wife laughs at is I used to be a sports fanatic and now I watch very little, you know, I like college football. I like college basketball, but it's hard to watch it when you know the individuals in there are breaking tons of rules and, you know, it changes who you root for and it's not a healthy thing. So, but it, it's the, the NCAA rules change every year. You know, there's, it's a rule book that's a couple inches thick. The schools vote up new rules, vote down new rules. So if you're a coach trying to keep track of this, it changes every year. So all of a sudden something that was a violation no longer is and something that wasn't is, and it's tough on them. And so every school has a compliance staff and the schools with money have, you know, five, 10, 15 people, well, maybe 10 on their compliance staff. Little schools, they have someone doing a job and part-time does compliance. 
And so you can tell that that's why they get caught. That's why they have the problems because they just don't have someone sitting right and heard on it like the bigger schools do. Yeah. And that's obviously we've, we've had issues with that, you know, in, in IU basketball where, you know, I remember, what was it? Maybe 15 years ago now, maybe a little less with Kelvin Sampson and all of his rule breaking and people talking about, you know, how, you know, he's a, a criminal and stuff like that. Well, not really. I mean, if you look at what he broke, yeah, there's some big things that really messed us up, but it really was just making phone calls. You're not supposed to make. So it right. wasn't, it wasn't really, I, I think some of the rules are a little bit, I guess, hard to, to, to follow. And that's probably why schools have to have, you know, like you said, compliance people just to try to navigate and understand what in the world they're supposed to do. Yeah. One of the famous stories when I was at the NCAA as a coach, I became very, very, very well connected with later on, but he was gone to law school. And so one of the rules said you couldn't have face-to-face contact with the high school kid during a certain time. So he would drive to the kid's house, sit in his car and call him on his phone and say, look out your window. See that car over there? Yeah, that's me. That's not face-to-face. Mm. And so, you know, it's people would say, well, it's the spirit of the rules. He knows he's committing a violation, but technically he wasn't. So you get that gamesmanship, you know, people either say, okay, this is what I've signed on for. I'm going to be honest and try to follow this. Or I'm going to try to figure out a way, a clever way around it. And, and it doesn't make them dishon. I mean, a rule breaker maybe, but it doesn't make them a criminal. And so one of the things I always kept sight of, even the most guilty people who broke the, all the NC rules, they're still, you know, human beings, coaches, when they intentionally did it, I'd, I'd say, well, you intentionally broke the rule, so you're going to suffer the consequence, and that's too bad. But there's a lot of times where someone committed a violation that really was a decent person that did, didn't intentionally set out to do that and just over time realized, oh, I didn't know that was even a violation. I've been doing that for years, and then they try to hide it. And it's a different vote with those people. I, and I never carried, like, even the most serious people that committed violations, I, at the end of it, I left it in the room and walked away. And I didn't have bad feelings towards those person, those people. And, you know, maybe that's a negative, but I always thought the NCAA, and I tell it, staff members at the NCAA, when it becomes personal to you, and when you no longer are trying to just find out the truth, but you're trying to go after somebody, you've lost your, your objectivity. The, the USC Reggie Bush case, one of the guys who worked from the NCA, who was my friend who did the case, said, I'm taking them down before I retire. And I remember saying, how can you be objective on this? Then if that's your attitude, you know, I, and I would say you, you have a better chance. I mean, you, you can prove somebody innocent through your investigation and that's your job. That's what you're doing. You're just trying to find the truth wherever. If it helps the school, great. If it hurts the school, that's too bad. But you're not trying to take a school down. You're trying to get to the truth. And that should be what they think. But a lot of people lose that objectivity. A lot of people. I guess the the other question, you've kind of answered a little bit of it already, but you've kind of talked a little bit about the issue of amateurism, which is kind of going by the wayside. You can talk about how you, you feel about that, but Given that while you were, um, you know, in in the investigative world, that it was still something they were trying to to uphold. I guess tell us just a little bit more about how that's really never been the case, and the money that's always kind of been in in college sports, kind of under the table, if you will. Yeah, so I've completely changed. I'm someone who's gone from one side 180 degrees different. So when I was young, starting out. I appreciate the value of a scholarship. I thought you're getting, you know, what, and I was not a great athlete. I was an okay athlete, but I still had to work. I still have to do things. So when you're getting a full scholarship and you're getting tutors and the only way you fail is if you try to fail, if you put no effort into it, they're going to help you get a degree. 
And I thought, you know, how much is that worth? Especially over a lifetime, that's a lot. And, and yet how is it? I mean, all the stuff you got and I'd hear people say, well, they're not making any money. And I was one of those that went, wow, wow. You got every kid at that school that's working their butts off to pay tuition and pay things would happily change places with you. I've completely come off of that because now you have coaches and, and commissioners and people in college athletics making millions and millions of dollars. And it's no longer, I can't look a kid in the eye and say, no, you don't deserve a piece of that pie. They do. And, and so the thing that's going to be difficult is if you start paying athletes, which they are right now, the schools aren't paying right now. They can go out on their own and get endorsements and do things like that. If the school started paying athletes, it's going to be the death knell of the smaller sports and some of the Olympic sports because you can't you can't pay just football. You got to pay every kid. So like Stanford has, I don't know, 40, 50 teams and athletes. You have to pay every single one of those kids. And so it, if you're thinking of most schools across the nation, they're, they're not making a ton of money off of athletics, all of a sudden having to pay everybody, they're not going to be able to do it. So it, it'll be sad because you'll start seeing programs left and right drop. And it's already happening. Some of the smaller, especially in the men's sports, because for Title IX, you have to have an equitable amount of women and men in, in the athletics. So they're dropping a lot of the small sports. I, I supervised wrestling at the Pac-12 and I think they're down to three schools. I mean, if I remember right. And so it, it's going to happen. Um, you know, financially, I think student athletes, I, I never had a problem with student athletes going out and doing endorsements. You know, if they can, if they can get it, the problem is how do you do that and not have the boosters and some of those people get involved and say, Hey, I'll get you a t-shirt deal. We'll, we'll sell a hundred thousand t-shirts and you'll make $200,000 and use that as an incentive to, enroll at the school you can't do it and that's what they're going to face now is you're going to have some of those schools with powerful boosters who are willing to put aside that kind of money to entice kids to come and they're going to do it they're already doing it i i agree with you i i a long time ago or not that long ago thought you know scholarships are are, are big enough i actually work in higher education on the you know the administrative side not in athletics but i've always thought you know that that should be enough but you know, I, I was listening to a, a documentary with, you know, University of Michigan players, the Fab Five. And I think it was Chris Weber that was saying that, you know, all these people during, you know, our heyday were making tons of money off of us. All, you know, the, the coach, all these, you know, they were selling jerseys, everything. They were making tons of money off of us. And I couldn't afford to even go to the, you know, the team store and, and buy a, a jersey if I, if I wasn't given one. So I, I, whether that's really true, I don't know, but that just, that just kind of, uh, you know, thought, well, well, dang, I mean, if everyone else is making money off of your work, I feel like maybe you should too. And like you were saying though, it's going to be a tough needle to, to thread because I, you know, you talk about the sec football, I think this is just going to make them on top of the world at this point yeah. where, you know, the, they're the ones with all the money and, and some of these smaller divisions and, and smaller conferences, I don't think they have a chance. I feel like right. it's just going to make them almost professional on all these other teams like, you know, peewee football. Yeah. And that's been happening for years. So it's not new back to Chris Weber. You know, when, when athletes say everybody's making money off money off of me, I'm getting none of it, but no one's ever said, but you're getting publicity. You're getting someone promoting you and you're going to have a, a long, if you're, if you're good and a long professional career that how it, you know, they're, they're enabling you to have that. So that's never factored into it. But again, they are, people are making tons of money. Once coaches are making six, seven, eight million dollars, the commissioner's making five million, you can't look a kid in the eye and say, yeah, you, your scholarship's good. 
even though I still, I deep down, I still believe the scholarship is, you know, that's a great, great, great thing to be able to get for free. Cause I had to work and I had to, I played sports and worked at night so I could do the whole thing. And so I, I have a great appreciation for it, but you can't make the argument anymore. And, and with a straight face. Right. So what made you leave the NCAA for the, um, the, the, the West coast, the PAC 10 at the time? So I'm, I'm born and raised in California, Southern California. And so when they, the PAC 12 is the only program that does their own enforcement, you know, they, and they don't do it anymore. They just stopped, but they did it for years. Um, they, when they came out their their guy actually became the head of NCAA enforcement. So they had an opening and the, they flew me out again on 9-11. I did my interview and got stuck in California for three days during all of that going on. And, and uh, it was mostly a chance to get back by family. You know, my family and my wife's family were all out here. So we, we came out and the PAC-12 program is interesting because you go and investigate that it was 10, now 12, 12 schools. And you do the same exact thing you did at the NCAA, but you know the people because you see them at meetings, you see them all the time. And for 19 years, I saw these people and I investigate them and, and then sit down with them and say, okay, here's what happened. Then we go to a hearing in front of the PAC-12, their rival schools, and I present the case and they defend themselves. And then those people uh, put penalties out. And then we turn around and take it to the NCAA. And now I sit with the school and I tell them, you know, I'm not going to excuse what you've done, but I'm going to help you position yourself for the best defense and to get the, the minimum possible penalty. So it was weird for me to one time being aggressive, pursuing it, and then helping them try to figure out, okay, how do we not get hammered for this? And some schools really listen well and, and it worked perfectly. And the NCAA would say, wow, they have an unfair advantage. And then other schools didn't listen and it was horrible. And they'd say, wow, they got hit twice. And so it was, it was really interesting, but it wasn't fun at all. It was never a fun thing because I'd present at the PAC 12, I'd present the case, they'd defend themselves. Then me and the school people would get up and go out in the hall and stand together while the PAC, other PAC 12 schools were debating what the penalty should be. And so it was really awkward at times, but then I turn around and help them later on. So I think, you know, one of the biggest things is I, was always straightforward and honest and told them what was going to happen from the very beginning. So there was never, they were never surprised. They knew what was going to happen. And I think they came to appreciate, okay, he's going to be straight with us. We may not like what he's saying about us, but he's at least not hiding. He's not surprising us with anything he's going to tell us. So that's how it worked at the PAC 12. Yeah. That's, that's interesting to have to kind of be on, on both sides, the, the defense and the prosecution. So that's kind of, that's kind of, that's interesting for, for sure. So how did you, you talked about with, when you worked with the NCAA, given that there were so many schools and people have probably never seen you before, sometimes it was as easy as, you know, putting on the polo shirt and kind of just talking to people to get some answers, given that these 10 people, these 12 people have seen you for years, I'm sure it wasn't as easy as putting on the polo to get answers. So how did you do that? So it's funny because I have a, a really funny story, but you know, they knew me. We Pac-12 had a rule that I couldn't go in undercover. I had to tell them if I was on campus what I was doing and give them advance notice. So it's really hard to do. I went one time to a school. I was at another school doing an investigation and the sister school was within driving distance and they had a game that night, basketball game. So I thought I'm off, you know, I, I don't have anything to do. So I drove over to watch the basketball game. New athletic director sees me and walks up because I was at all the athletic director's meetings. And so he sees me, he walks up and goes, what, Ron, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm here just to watch your game tonight. And he goes, okay. Like he didn't know. And then he's like, 
Uh, and I said, look, under the rules, I'd have to tell you if I was doing an investigation. I'm seriously just here as a fan to watch your game. And he goes, <laughs> okay. And he's really nervous. At halftime, he comes over again and he goes, come here. We walk down the tunnel at their school. And he goes, look, I'm new. I don't want to get embroiled in something like this right off the bat. Tell me, be honest with me. And I said, <laughs> look, I'm being honest with you. And, and years later, we'd laugh about it. So you have those kind of experiences with people, but then you'd have the experiences where they would get mad and say, you're crazy. And what you're telling them is not true. But, you know, I was not a zealot. So I, I would come in and say, look, here's what I have. Here's the information I have. Here's the proof. So you can defend everybody all you want, but if you sit back and I leave and you sit and think about it, you don't really have a defense. So let's figure out what, how to move forward now. So, you know, it was, I think that some of the greatest praise I ever got was they would tell my boss, the commissioner of PAC 10, you know, he's totally fair and he's honest with what he tells us. So we trust him. Like we're, we don't like some of the conclusions he reaches. We don't like some of the findings and we're going to fight him, but we don't have a problem with him. And so that, you know, that's what my goal was. That I wanted to be straightforward with everybody. Yeah. So you mentioned the the Reggie Bush thing. Any other, you know, I, I, you said, I don't know how, how detailed you want to be, but any other kind of scandals that we might have, have heard about that you that you've worked on? Well, the USC Reggie Bush one was the biggest, one of the biggest cases ever at the NCAA. And, mm-hmm. and you know, you, you've got to remember whenever I talk about this, people say, oh, you're just, you're an apologist for USC because you're at the Pac-10. But there were nine other Pac-10 schools that wanted USC to go down so hard. So, you know, it, the NCA had it out for USC because USC was kicking everybody's rear end in football at the time. And the people on the committee at the NCA were at some of those from some of those schools that have been getting killed. Mm-hmm. And so they wanted to go after Pete Carroll. And, and I didn't, you know, I'm not, I'm not friends with any of the coaches. I know who they are. Some of them know me, some don't, but Pete Carroll, they wanted him so badly, but he wasn't involved at all. They went, they did everything to try to prove he was involved and he wasn't at the end of the day, it was, Reggie Bush and his stepdad, it was actually his stepdad. Reggie was trying to protect his stepdad from taking the heat for all of this, but they went after USC and, and just hammered him. I mean, hammered him. And I think it was unfair. I think USC might've been doing some other stuff that maybe they should have gotten hit for, but what they got was just, you look at anything before or since similar things or even more severe things. Nobody got that penalty. So that was one of the big ones. Um, the Chip Kelly, Oregon uh, thing where they had the recruiting scandal at the time, we interviewed everybody, and, and the way he explained it to us was, look, I went from a national recruiting guy to a guy that did Texas and the West Coast. I was trying to save money for the school, and sure enough, he was, and when we interviewed, I would go to the other nine schools, and I'd go to the other conferences that I had friends at, and I'd say, look, you know, this is kind of a new thing. Do you guys do this? And they'd all say, yeah, we've been doing that for years. It's just Oregon got caught. And so I use this analogy a lot on cases because people would say, everyone's doing this. And I'd say, it's like you're on California driving the freeway going 75 miles an hour. Everybody's going 75, but if a policeman pulls you over, you don't have a defense, you're guilty. And so that's what happened in the Oregon case. They were guilty of what they got caught doing, but probably 75% of the nation was big time schools were doing the exact same thing at the time. They just got caught. So, you know, that was a big one. Rick Neuheisel, I don't know if you know that name. Uh, he was one of the big gambling cases. He's now an announcer for CBS, was coaching at Washington, University of Washington at the time. And the NCAA really wanted to prove a gambling case. And Rick uh, and his butt, some wealthy businessmen in Seattle would auction off. The, they'd go to a dinner and they'd auction off all the NCAA basketball tournament teams, the teams that made the tournament. And then they had a formula and you'd buy your teams. You know, he was with three other guys. They bought a number of teams. And then depending on how well they did, they won money. 
And so it had nothing to do with football, had nothing to do with him recruiting or anything, but the NCAA said, and there's a rule that you can't participate in gambling in sports that the NCAA sponsors. And so he got caught and it was a huge giant story at the time. At the end of the day, if, if he would have just came in and said, I didn't know that it provided to basketball and that the tournament, here's what we did. I think it would have been not that big of an issue, but the NCAA really wanted to get a gambling case. And that was the first one that hit him. So it, it became big and he ended up getting fired and suing the NCAA and the, and uh, the University of Washington in winning. And I used to tell my boss, hey, we didn't get sued through this whole thing. I got deposed. I got a, but we didn't get sued. I should get a raise. And he just went, out of boy. So I got yeah. nothing out of it. But, you know, those, those are some of the big ones. Lately, the last few years, the, the Varsity Blues case where the parents were paying the celebrities and rich people were paying to get their kids into school, that struck us. I worked a little bit on that. And then there's a still ongoing case with men's basketball where the FBI came in and did stings and tape coaches in their hotel rooms. And there's probably nine, 10 schools that still haven't had an NCAA hearing yet. Big name schools, Kansas, Arizona. And so that's still sitting out there. They've been waiting for law enforcement to get done with it, but they've been done for a while. So I think in the next year, you'll start seeing penalties come out of that at the NCAA side. Yeah. Yeah, and you, you talked about how they, the NCAA really wanted a, a gambling case. Did, did you find that happened a lot where, you know, in, in regular you know, law enforcement, sometimes things get prosecuted just to, I guess, to put people on notice and, and create a, a case that just shows everybody else that, hey, this is, you can't do this. There's kind of create that precedence. Is that, did that happen sometimes where, you know, cases happen that you're like, man, this is kind of goofy or I hate that we're, we have to, to go after this so hard, uh, but it really was just to kind of pick a, a certain topic in order to kind of show everybody else what, what wasn't going to be, I guess, tolerated, so to speak. Yeah, I think that that was the only one I could really point to. There were times where a new rule would come out and they would try. It wasn't set down, said, hey, we want to find someone guilty of this so we can show everybody. But when somebody did get caught, then they would use it, publicize it. So I don't think the NCAA ever sat down and except for that new Heisel case, they really, they, they went after it. And it was, if you looked at what was going on, it really was, I mean, depends on what your view is, but it was innocent as far as he did something wrong that was going to affect football, affect his university or affect him as a coach. It it was something that, Hey, you signed on to coach and you signed on not to participate in this kind of stuff. So you're guilty, but you know what, who did he hurt? Not really anybody. And so that, you know, that was, really the only time I can think of that where they just wanted to get somebody to show, Hey, we, we got somebody in this area. I got you. So what made you, I guess, move on from, from this type of role? Well, the PAC 10 became the PAC 12. We got a commissioner who sole main goal was to raise money. And we went from a conference where we were, our primary goal was to serve the student athletes and serve our 10 universities to now we were money, 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 money. And we started telling everyone that school is what they should and shouldn't do. And it just wasn't really what I had signed on for. And they devalued the enforcement side of it because they didn't like it because you have to have some, some guts to sit and look at one of your schools. If you're the commissioner and say, look, you're guilty. This is the penalty. And so that, all that kind of stuff, it, it just became, um, I, I, I think the last four or five years there, just, it wasn't the same thing that I had signed on for. And then when they, when they had the COVID, um, they furloughed or laid off a ton of us and that they had decided if we're not doing enforcement, you're gone. So, you know, I, it wasn't my choice, but it was a great time for me because I was able to transition. I was working on the book anyways, because 
I, you know, I wasn't able to talk about my cases ever to anybody. I didn't want to, I didn't want my name ever being known. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who have very small roles who become experts and go out and talk about enforcement. And I used to laugh going, they only knew what half of what they're talking about. And there was one guy at ESPN who came to me, who covered the pack 10. And he said, look, how far off are we in some of these stories? And I said, way off. And I, you know, I don't know these people. And he said, well, would, would you help me? And I said, I don't want my name ever being out there. During the Reggie Bush case, the commissioner gave my name and home number out to reporters. And my little daughter at the time was seven, eight, nine years old, answered the phone. It was the LA Times calling on a Sunday morning. I got livid. And I was like, I didn't sign on to have my family involved in this stuff. So we had to take it to the presidents of the Pac-12 schools. Me and the commissioner were at disagreement and they said, no, he has a right to a personal life. So I actually won that. I was, I, I was thinking of leaving at that time. But, you know, you, you get to a point where you're, you're sitting here thinking, what am I doing and why, why am I doing this? And that all changed. And so when, when, the, when COVID hit and they told me you're going to be gone, I decided, hey, I can start talking now. You know, I'm, I never was signed anything or said anything where I couldn't talk. But it was always understood by me that I'm not going to go out and burn people and talk about cases because who would ever talk to me, first of all? And that's not, I don't want to embarrass and, and people that were either guilty or committed and made mistakes without trying to cheat. And so even now, I've now written a book, but I don't name names. I created an actual real case I worked and made it a fictional a novel. And so, you know, I've got several of those in the pipeline and I'm doing a few. And this one, the first one I wrote was a case I did at the NCAA where uh, a junior college coach had two star players who were being heavily recruited. And he told them, you can't pass the math class. So you're never gonna be able to pass and graduate from the JC and, and get your, a, your degree and go on to the four-year school. So let me, help you, let me help you with that. I'm gonna sign you up for a correspondence math class. And then he helped him cheat through the whole thing. And the book explains it and tells how it happened and what he did and how they did it. And then when they finished and got their degrees, he said, I want you to go to this school. And they were like, no, they're heavily recruited. And they said, no, we don't want to go to that school. And he said, it'd be a shame if anyone found out you cheated. Mm. So he was going to expose his own players who he had helped cheat and told them, Who's, who are they going to believe, you guys or me? And so they ended up having to go to the school where he was getting hired as a coach and they, they ended up playing for him and they hated him and didn't want to go there. But, you know, he ended up doing that. And that, that's the nasty stuff where you're sitting there going, this guy used his own kids, helped him cheat, and then threatened to expose him for cheating so he could get a better job. And so that's, the, you know, it's, it's an interesting story. I always found it fascinating. When I finally interviewed the coach, he had been fired and he was out of coaching and he had gone to law school and he was clerking for the Supreme Court of Texas. And I interviewed him in the Supreme Court of the Texas Judges Chambers. And I remember sitting there going, you can't make this stuff up. Like it's, it's, and he's a practicing attorney. I, I asked the NCAA, you know, he's got to take the bar. Can't we give this information? And the NCAA was like, we don't want to get in the middle of that. We're not going to get them. We'd get sued. And so we didn't tell anybody. We just did the case and moved on. And he's now a practicing attorney. That's, that's insane. That's, that's crazy. So that's what your, your first book is about. It's a, it's a fictional version of that, but, but that's what, what it's about. Correct. Yeah, it's a, it's a fictional book, and it says right on the cover, a fictional book based on a true story. It's called The Reluctant Players, available on Amazon by me, Ron Barker. It's, I think it's $4.99 for the ebook and $9.99 for a printed copy. And you know, it's, I just started it. I, I just thought nobody understands the NCAA process. You go to well-known coaches who have been coaching for 20, 30 years. 
They've never been in front of it. They don't know. A coach may go once in their life in front of the NCAA community on infraction. So nobody knows. Schools don't know. And so there's only a few small attorneys who handle. There's one guy who handles probably 60% of the cases. And then there's two or three more that do the other 35. And then the last 5% hire private attorneys who walk in and not understand what's going to happen because it's not a court. You have nine people sitting there asking you questions. They can talk to anybody. And and it's just not a fair system for someone who doesn't have the experience. So I always wanted to shed some light on it, but I didn't know how you could do it. This kind of does that. You can kind of read and say, oh, okay, so this guy has to go in front of the committee. Here's what happens. So I'm hoping that it'll get people a little bit more knowledgeable at this. The ESPN guy that used me, I told him at one point, you know, I'm not going to, I'm going to give you some small stuff. I never want my name out there. And if you burn me, I'll never talk to you again. We had a good relationship for years. I wouldn't burn people. I didn't turn people. But when he would come with questions about something, I would give him the answers. And he was able to sometimes scoop his uh, counterparts. They'd say that he came to me one year and said, you know, everybody's saying that Chip, this is Chip Kelly, Oregon, that they're going to get hammers. And you keep telling me it's not going to be that bad. He goes, how sure are you? And I said, I'm pretty sure. I'm not positive, but I'm pretty sure. So he would write that. And sure enough, he was right. So when it actually came out that way, all of a sudden he had, a, a, you know, they were saying, how do you know that? He came to me and said, well, you talk to these other people. I said, no, I don't want my name out there. I trust you because you don't burn me, but I'm not going to have that relationship with 10 or 15 people. I don't want anyone to know who I am. So, you know, he and I had a good relationship, but for the most part, I tried to just stay out of the media altogether. Yeah. So have you had any issues now? You said, obviously you didn't sign any NDAs or anything like that, but how how has the Pac-12 or the NCAA kind of have they responded at all about you kind of talking a little bit more about it or is that something that's they don't even care about at this point? I yeah I don't I mean I've talked to a couple of attorney friends who have gone and looked through this and they said you can't tell who this is nobody knows who this is the person involved will know but nobody the average person would have no clue who this is. So I'm pretty protected. I don't have any names. I did, the schools are fictional schools that I've talked to talk about. And so I'm, I'm not too worried about it. I haven't had anyone say anything. If, if I start turning out PAC 12 stories, then maybe, you know, PAC 12 will have an issue. But I, even then my, my goal is not to burn people or embarrass anyone. Like, you know, I started working on a USC book and my wife read it and said, you don't have enough detail in here. And I said, yeah, I can't because I don't want the people to know who it is. And she goes, it's not good. And so I've put that aside because I just don't think it's fair. And I don't think I could do a fair job of talking about the case. Maybe I'll change my mind in the years to come. But right now I'm trying to keep a pretty, you know, so the average person reading wouldn't have a clue what school it was about. And I don't want and even the guilty people. I don't want to burn. I don't have any desire to do that. Yeah. So is the book, is the book written in the perspective of, you know, the investigator or what perspective is it in? So it's, it, there's a character named Matt Coulter, who's a, he's kind of a cross people who have read it said, Oh, is that you? And I said, no, not really, because there's an NCAA person who, who he spars with a little bit. He's written, he's the person who is hired by the school to come in and figure out what happened and help them get ready for the NCAA hearing. So, you know, sometimes he'll find things that the NCAA doesn't sometimes he'll find things that, that, Oh, oh we got to figure out how to position ourselves at the school. He's a former NCAA investigator who is now work, working in the private sector defending schools. And so that's what the point of view, it comes from him. But the, you know, the, the characters are based off of real people. The, the main character in this is kind of a, a comp composite between my, my view and what I did, some of the attorneys I worked with that represented schools, and then some of the NSA people. So it's, you know, it kind of gives a, a, 
different view of everything in there. And, and there are characterizations that I based off of real people that, you know, if you knew that people, you'd go, yeah, that's them. But no, you know, the average person won't know who it is. You said that can be found on Amazon and ebook and in print form, right? Yeah, it's called the the Reluctant Players. This is it right here in front. I have it on the screen for you, but it's the Reluctant Players, and it says a, a, a crime college sports scandal based on a true story, and has my name Ron Barker in it. And you know, sells the the. If I go speak to a group, then I have tons of people buy the book. If I just try to figure out how to to get it out there, like I, every time I do a radio, I've done a couple of pretty big radio interviews and it sell ten copies. I go speak to a group of 50 people and I'll sell 50 copies. So it's just interesting. I'm still learning. This is all new to me, you know, trying to figure out how to set up the fonts and everything was new to me. So I'm enjoying doing it and I'm trying to shed some light on how the NCA enforcement process works without hurting feelings or hurting anybody's you know, reputation. An interesting thing real fast is when I was at the NCA, I used to think, wow, this job would make a great show law and order sports. And so I actually tried to pursue it. And I, and I had someone fly me out to LA to sit and talk to them. And they were like, it was a worldwide pants, David Lehrman's company. Mm-hmm. And we sat and talked to him and I thought, this is it. You know, I'm going to be the advisor on this. It's going to go. Cause I think it'd be interesting. And the guy said, you know, we only do comedy. And I went, well, then why am I here? And he <laughs> said, well, we had some extra money on our research budget. I think this is fascinating stuff. <laughs> so I flew me out. And then in the years I was at the PAC 10, PAC 12, I had one Hollywood company call me and said, we want to do this and we want to make it a reality show. And I was like, first of all, that won't work because who's going to sign away their rights in the middle of an investigation. And I have no interest in doing that. So, you know, I think there, there's part of me that says, wow, this is really interesting people. You don't have to even care about sports to think this would be interesting. But then there's another part saying, I don't know if it'll ever see the light of day. So, you know, it's, I'm kind of in in the middle right now, wondering if anyone ever see the possibilities more stay tuned more to come there but talking about more to come did you did you kind of allude to there there'll be more books that are covering other cases yeah i've, I've got a four or five in my mind I'm, I'm almost done with the second one right now um they're pretty easy because in the second one it's about a football player who the compliance person at his school was had it was a 30 something year old woman was having an affair with a 19 year old football player and helped him make it appear on his records that he was taking more classes so he could get more money and then also um, they were having a relationship and in the middle of it, we discovered what was happening and he ended up killing one of his teammates, uh, a former player from the same school and mm. he, you know, star player now on death row and it's a true story. And so that's what I'm working on as the second one. There's just stories that, you know, it's sad, interesting, but they're, I think the public would be interested in them. And, and I'm not, again, you know, I'm trying to just say, here's the process. Here's some of the things that happen out there that you don't know about. Well, I feel like that one, it would be a little bit easier to figure out what you're talking about. Surely there's not a ton of, of yeah. star football players on death row. So, but the record, what has happened is a matter of records and a court case, everything. So it's not a matter of, you know, I'm not surprising anybody. And right. <laughs> right. I got you. It's but, the law, not the NCAA issues. Like we talked about, you know, like when it's the law, then that's different than with NCAA issues or someone's committing an NCAA violation. Right. Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you, it's, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I, I learned a lot. It, it was fascinating to me. I do think it'll be fascinating to a lot of people, whether they're interested in, in sports or not, just to kind of hear the, a little bit of the inside world of, of college sports. It's kind of a strange phenomenon in the United States to begin with. Most countries don't do anything close to what we do when it comes to college sports. So I, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for being here. 
Yeah, thank you. And, you know, the interesting thing of the book, again, the reluctant players is I had some of my wife's friends who have no interest in sports and they were the ones who liked it the most. Mm. They were like, it's just interesting. This kind of, we don't know that world. And so I actually was surprised that the, the people who have given me the greatest positive feedback are people who are not sports people. And it's, it's a fictional book, easy reading. So like right now I, I went and spoke this morning in a group and I had a woman come up and say, I want to buy one for each of my sons and my ex-husband. So I saw the five my copies. Right there. Yeah. Yeah. Which is funny to me, but it, it, it is just pretty easy reading. And if you like mystery sports or if you like sports, you'll like it. If you like mysteries and just police drama stuff, you, I think you'll like it. So you don't have to be a sports fan to like it. Absolutely. And I'm sure some of your, your family and your family's friends, I would only assume they've spent years kind of asking you now exactly what is it that you do? What do you do now to actually write a book that kind of dives into it? I'm sure that was fascinating for, for a lot of people. Yeah. And it, it was cathartic to me because I couldn't talk to my wife. From, I have four daughters and they didn't care at all about my job. And, and <laughs> once one of them got to college and called me and said, hey, I'm sitting around with these guys. Will you tell them what you do for a living? And I was like, oh, now you care. And so I, I didn't tell her. I said, I'm an elementary school custodian, which I did at one point in my life. And, and she's like, no, come on, tell him. I said, that's what I do. And so you, you're right. Uh, people, good friends who I never could tell anybody what I was doing. So now they're reading and going, I didn't know you did this. And so that's what I'm getting from a lot of people. My wife knew, you know, at least what cases I was working on, but even the details I didn't talk to, I, I just made it a practice not to talk to anybody about it. So this is kind of revelatory to them to say, well, I didn't know you did this kind of stuff. And right. Yeah. Well, again, pleasure speaking with you. I really appreciate your time. Great. I th- thank you for, I appreciate do- doing it. And if, if there ever comes a time where you have an issue with college sports, you want someone to talk to, give me a call. I absolutely will. Thank you. So that was Ron Barker, definitely an interesting guy who's just been in really kind of the forefront of uh, just the investigative world of college athletics for you know two decades. I, I hope you learned a lot from from this conversation. Whether you're a huge college sports fan, and I wanted to notice a little bit more about what it means when the NCAA comes out with these big uh, infractions and and putting people on penalties and telling them they can't be in the tournaments and and all that kind of stuff hopefully this provided just a little bit more insight into that world if you're not a college sports fan at all hopefully you learned just a little bit more about uh, just what happens when when money gets involved in in sports and and uh, just a little bit more about a, a very i guess secretive area you know infractions are are an area that uh, don't not a lot of people know a lot about just like you mentioned there's uh, you know, whole athletic departments who have to hire people just to understand these infractions. So hope you enjoyed that. If it's something that you are interested in, absolutely check out his books. I will put the links to his book uh, in on Amazon uh, in the show notes. Check him out. Of course, as always, follow us on Instagram, jacksonup.com, all of those places. Subscribe, follow, whatever you do with podcasts. And uh, if you do use Apple Podcasts, make sure to, uh, I guess, rate us and, and leave a review. Always appreciate that. See you next week. Appreciate you being here. Take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think or, hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.